All right, welcome back, everybody. Hour number two is here, and we're glad that you decided to join us. If you're staying over from hour number one, that's great. If you're coming in for the first time, come on in. Uh, we're going to get into a conversation here about the war in Iraq. I know that's a controversial topic, but I thought it would be good for us to talk about it. By the way, we haven't given up on the library. I'm still, I've got a call, a message on my phone, and just because of everything that was going on this weekend with Vision 24 down in Charleston, I haven't had a chance to, to return the call. But it, I'm getting messages saying that there is going to be a March 27th meeting of the full library committee. Uh, now, the question is, will there be, will anybody be allowed to speak? And we don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, but I'll be, I'm going to be looking at that. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try to, beginning with, not tomorrow, Corey's going to be here, and then Wednesday's going to be a best of. But we're going to, I'm going to try to get this information to Corey so he can talk about it. And then we can start generating some support because I'm telling you, the people on this library committee in Greenville that want to do the common sense thing, which is simply put adult materials in adult sections of the library and get them out of the children's section, that they need your support. Because the other side that wants, you know, all kind of what amounts to pornographic literature available for children, they they bring people to these meetings. And generally, we don't. And we need to have people um, to show up to show this co library committee that there are a lot of people in Greenville County that don't want those materials available for children. We're not calling for them to be burned. We're not calling for that section of the library to be shut down. We're not trying to deny anybody the opportunity to get books that they want. We just want them to be adults and not children. And so we're going to get deeper into that um, after I have a chance to find out a little bit more information. So 20 years ago, the United States invaded Iraq. And I think for us to fully understand the decision to do that, whether it was a mistake or not, a lot of people, of course, now are calling it a mistake. Uh, we didn't find weapons of mass destruction on a large scale. Uh, and there are all kinds of reasons why. Uh, it's, it's hard to believe that all of the intelligence agencies around the free world that coalesced and confirmed that Saddam Hussein had and would use weapons of mass destruction and then not to find any, um, it, it, it seems to me that the logical conclusion would be that he got rid of them before American forces were able to discover them. A lot of them went to Syria. And I know that theory has been debated back and forth. In some people's minds, it's been discredited. For others, it is exactly what happened. So, but understanding the Iraq war and understanding why it was launched 20 years ago today, we have to go back and we really start in 1991 with the United States and the coalition of nations that threw Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, the Gulf War. Uh, it was believed then that, you know, the purpose of that war was to push Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait 
put him back into Iraq. When they accomplished this, then the mission ended. I mean, there were people calling for the United States at that time to go into Baghdad and take over Iraq. But that was never the goal of Desert Storm. The goal was to liberate Kuwait and to basically end Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. And effectively, the United States did that. Then in 1993, the United States executed retaliatory strikes on Iraqi targets in response to the exposure of a sophisticated Baghdad-led plot to kill former President George W. Bush. Sometimes we forget this, that the Iraqis came up with an assassination attempt and tried to to kill George H.W. Bush because of the the Gulf War. Three years later, the U.S. again struck Iraqi targets, this time in in response to an Iraqi land offensive against the Kurdish city of Erbil the largest such offensive since the 1991 war, which violated a United Nations Security Council resolution. Operation Desert Fox in 1998 was a kinetic military response to Saddam's refusal to allow inspectors searching for evidence of weapons of mass destruction access to sensitive areas. That was in 1998. So even after the Gulf War in 1991, when Saddam was removed, you've got intermittent clashes between Saddam Hussein and the United States, or you could say Saddam Hussein in the West, led by the U.S. The September 11 attacks focused the minds of American policymakers who had once been Saddam's Iraq as a containable menace. Democrats have succeeded in their campaign to retroactively condition the American public to the notion that they never regarded Iraq as a terrorism incubator and therefore an unacceptable threat. So that's, you know, again, Democrats, when history doesn't reflect well on them, and the same is true for progressives, if history reflects um, well on conservatives and poorly on progressives, What progressives do is just rewrite the history. That's what the 1819 Project is all about. That's what rewriting the history of Iraq is all about. Because when you you go back to um, pre-9-11, the Clinton-era National Security Council member Kenneth Pollack described a spring 2002 meeting in which nearly 20 former United Nations Special Commission inspectors expressed the consensus view that Iraq was converting, uh, was covertly enriching uranium. So you had 20 inspectors come during the Clinton years, and that reflected the consensus view among Western intelligence agencies that Iraq a regime that paid salaries to the relatives of Palestinian suicide bombers and financed the training of al-Qaeda-linked operatives in North Africa, had an advanced WMD program. Now, what about Democrats at that time? Did they agree with this assessment, or did they push back under the Clinton administration? The risk that the leaders of a rogue state will use nuclear, chemical, or biological weapons against us or our allies is the greatest security threat we face. Now, that was Clinton's Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, in 1998. Sandy Berger, Clinton's National Security Advisor, agreed, quote, he will use those weapons of mass destruction again as he has 10 times since 1983. 
Nancy Pelosi, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, and other Democrats in good standing all issued statements supporting, to one degree or another, efforts to neutralize the threat posed by Iraq's unconventional armaments and its support for terrorism. By the way, this is all coming from a piece today at National Review by Noah Rothman. So they can't walk away from their record. I mean, they can try to rewrite history, but to do that, you've got to erase all of these quotes that are still out there from prominent Democrats. The official position of the Clinton administration was that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and that they were a threat to the Western world. Now, if we assume at least some of these Clinton-era Democrats would have served in high-level positions in an Al Gore administration, let's suppose George Bush lost, Al Gore was the president, would the United States have gone after Iraq? Well, if, if the conventional wisdom during the Clinton administration of all these highly placed officials that were Democrats, if that prevailed and you had an Al Gore as president, I don't think there's any doubt that there would have been an invasion of Iraq. We're talking about an article today at National Review by Noah Rothman, and he's talking about um, Iraq 20 years after the Iraq War. And most people see that as a failure. They lay that at, at President Bush's feet. Uh, they ignore the fact that all, that all Democrats, um, leading Democrats, believed before Bush was even elected president, that Iraq was a danger to the to the free world, that Saddam Hussein needed to be dealt with, that he had weapons of mass destruction, that he was enriching uranium. I mean, all of that was agreed upon by the inspectors, by the intelligence agencies, by Democrats. And then, of course, when, when George Bush went to war in Iraq, all that changed. The Democrats changed their tune because politically— it was not advantageous for them, and it's all about power, quite frankly, to to Democrats. So what does Iraq look like? Well, in 2003, Iraq's gross domestic product, the GDP of the country, was 10% of what it is today. Quality of life, consumer spending, literacy, life expectancy, all have improved in Iraq since the Iraq War. Iraq's Kurds, are no longer they no longer live in constant fear of genocidal reprisals from Baghdad, nor do Iraq's Marsh Arabs. The lawful disposal, trial, and execution of a murderous despot liberated the nation from his caprice, cruelty, and disregard for human dignity and life. In other words, we got Saddam Hussein. It made Iraq a better place. The world is a better place without Saddam Hussein. Now, does that justify the cost in American lives? Does it justify all the money that we spend on the Iraq War? That's honestly, that's for historians years from now to unpack. 20 years in is not enough time to determine finally whether the war in Iraq was a good thing or a bad thing. There were a lot of bad things. There's no question. Abu Ghraib the treatment of Iraqi prisoners, um, the, I mean, we could go on and on talking about, talking about the downside of the Iraq war. But the upside is that Iraq is now a country, although it is 
horribly corrupt. I mean, they've had six parliamentary elections, free parliamentary elections since the end of the Iraq war. So arguably, that means they represent the most successful exercise in American-led democracy promotion since the Second World War. I mean, that, where, where else can you say that? You certainly can't say it about Afghanistan. You can't say it about Syria. You, can, you, you have a parliamentary government in Iraq. It may be corrupt. It may be dysfunctional in a lot of ways. But it's way better than what they had before with Saddam Hussein. The quality of life is better. Noah writes, uh, talking about Anbar, the Anbar Awakening, a byproduct of effective counterinsurgency operations, which put a premium on protecting Iraqi civilians and of America's partnership with local leaders, transformed a province that was Saddam Hussein's base of Sunni support from being a place of resistance to the new government to being uh, to the new government to being the home of stakeholders in it. Nor has the country become an Iranian satrap, as many feared it would in the period following the full withdrawal of U.S. troops in 2011. That happy outcome is due in part to the preservation of a U.S. military presence in Iraq at the invitation of the host government. We got out in 2011. We went back by invitation in 2014. Now, those with a reflective hostility toward American commitments abroad won't recognize all that is that as a victory, but the conduct of American statecraft over the last 30 years demonstrates that the U.S. has permanent interest in the Persian Gulf. I mean, I think that's, th that's true. The flow of oil uh, coming from that part of the world is still vital to American interest. And right now, even though Iraq is terribly corrupt, it is a country that's operating under some form of freedom that's allowing the people who live there to flourish more than they have in decades. So, a lot of bad things come out of the, that came out of the Iraq War? Yes. But they've not all been bad. And those who would say that they are are rewriting history for political purposes. They're not looking honestly at what's happening. I mean, right now in the Middle East, you know, what were the Abraham Accords, which it, 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 was a, it pulled us close to Saudi Arabia. The Biden administration comes in, pushes the Saudis away, and look where they've gone. They're embracing Iran, which we, the Saudis sought closer ties to the United States and even to Israel in order to protect against Iranian aggression. Now the Saudis think the best way to protect against Iranian aggression, because the Biden administration botched our relationship with them, is to form an alliance with Iran. And, of course, you've got another alliance forming. You've got Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin forming an alliance with Iran. These are beginning to be, this is the kind of stuff that was going on prior to World War II, where you had a forming of alliances against the West. Japan, Germany, Italy, the Axis powers. What are the new Axis powers? China, Russia, Iran. 
and probably to a lesser degree, North Korea. There's a story out there today that Kim Jong-un is telling its pe- the people of North Korea to prepare for the, for the fact that North Korea is going to launch a nuclear attack. They're not saying get ready for the possibility of the West coming after us. They're saying prepare for the fact that North Korea may take the first step. Now, this is, this is what the world looks like. Speaker after speaker on Saturday at Vision 24 made the statement that when the United States is weak, the world is less safe. And that's absolutely true. We have a weak United States. People do not believe that Joe Biden and the Biden administration is going to stand by our allies, and they don't believe that we're going to take on our foes. Uh, Yes, we've pumped a lot of money into Ukraine, but, you know, there, there's one thing about it. If we were going to go into Ukraine and, and empower them to defeat the Russians, we would have done more than we've, than we've done already. I mean, th- you know, that's the thing about war. If you're in, get in all the way. Now, that doesn't mean send troops, but it does mean if you're going to not send troops and you're going to empower the Ukrainians, give them everything they need. Give them the tanks, give them the planes that they need in order to win, to push Russia out. And I think the Ukrainians could do that if they were properly supplied. Either you do that or you get out, or you don't do it to start with. And that's the problem with the United States. That's the problem with the Biden administration. Halfway measures leave us in limbo. And that's essentially where we are. We've got a stalemate. And now today you've got Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin meeting together. The ICC is the International Criminal Court. Uh, It has 123 member states that are part of the ICC. The United States played a role in establishing the ICC, but it is not one of the states that submits to its jurisdiction or is a member state. It's important to remember that. But the ICC indicted Vladimir Putin for war crimes committed in Ukraine. And the main war crimes that he was indicted for was for the illegal deportation of children. Now, this is, this is a horrible thing that's going on in Ukraine. Uh, Russian troops are taking Ukrainian children and deporting them back to Russia. Um, and it's, I mean, <laughs> the, the International Criminal Court was right to issue an, a warrant for Putin's arrest and to indict him for those crimes. Now, that doesn't mean anything other than it's an embarrassment to Russia, to the Russian people, to the country, that they've got an outlaw thug running their country who is committing war crimes in Ukraine. I mean, besides that, the Russian military has targeted civilians. I mean, there are all kinds of things that Putin could be charged with by the ICC. It's just that most of the evidence points directly to Russia's deportation of children. So what does this mean today that Xi Jinping, it, it, imagine a major world leader going to Moscow to meet with a thug who's been indicted for war crimes? Um, it What it really shows is Xi Jinping's amb- ambitions in terms of coming against a United States-led 
world order that is a, and I don't mean that in the negative sense of the new world order, but I'm talking about the fact that the United States and its allies are largely the, the movers and shakers of policy taking place in the world. China hates that. They want to form an alliance that is a legitimate threat to American supremacy. And that's what this is all about. Um, this is coming from Fox News today. Xi's visit is the latest side of, sign of Beijing's emboldened diplomatic ambitions, and it comes amid sharpening east-west tensions over the war in Ukraine, now in its 13th month. Xi recently scored a diplomatic victory, according to an intelligence official, by bypassing the U.S. and brokering a reapproachment between Iran's regime and Saudi Arabia. See, this is, this is bad. Again, that China became the broker of a deal between the Saudis and the Iranians. How far removed are we from the success of the Trump administration and the Abraham Accords? If they had been followed by President Biden, this alliance between China, Iran, and, and uh, the Saudis would never have taken place. But because President Biden chose to insult the Saudis, and look, I get it, Saudi Arabia is is a rogue state in, in, in its own right. I mean, they're not—the fact that we're friendly with them is a geopolitical decision. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that we think Saudi Arabia is a great country. It has to do with the geopolitical alignment of nations around the world. It's better for the West, it's better for the United States if Saudi Arabia is perceived— at least, as an ally and not somebody that's cozying up to Xi Jinping and beginning to make accommodations for Iran. Rebecca Koffler, a former analyst at the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency, told Fox News Digital that Xi's meeting with Putin is highly significant because Xi is highly incentivized to drag out Putin's war on Ukraine because China benefits from it, both as its top strategic uh, adversaries are depleting their combat arsenals in Ukraine in a proxy war. So, in other words, China wants to see Russia succeed in Ukraine. China benefits as long as the war is going on because Russia has become a huge customer of all things Chinese. China's supplying Russia with the things that the rest of the world are denying Russia right now. And it's strengthening the bonds between Russia and China. Koffler added, this is why she will likely uh, approve lethal aid to Russia, but they're probably discussing how to transfer this aid through third parties so China can bypass U.S. sanctions policy. So the United States, China is not prepared for a direct action against the United States yet. They're working on it, but they're not prepared for it at the moment. And so they're, gonna, they're, they're not going to come out and openly supply the Russians with what they need in Ukraine, lethal weapons to support Russia's invasion. They're going to find third parties to get those into Russian hands that maybe can't be tra traced back to China. Or at least if it is, it won't be a direct 
violation of the sanctions so that China can try to keep their hands clean. Ask about the Xi-Putin meeting and a potential Xi phone call with President Biden, National Security Council Strategic Communications Director John Kirby, told Fox News on Sunday that the president wants to keep lines of communications open with China, and you've heard him say it himself just in recent days that he does not want to set up another chance to talk to President Xi. Uh, Excuse me, that he does want to set up another chance to talk to President Xi, and I suspect that will happen. It will happen in due course when it's the appropriate time to do so. It's important particularly when the tensions are so high between our two countries that these two leaders keep that line of communication open, and the president is committed to doing that. Yeah, keep the lines of communication open. To talk about what? To talk about Russia's new role? To talk about Russia supplying lethal arms to China against to use against Ukraine? What, what other action is the president willing to take to try to blunt China's influence in the region? She sees a huge opening here because of the weakness of the Biden administration. Kirby added, there's no question that both China and Russia, and this is right out of the national security strategy, are two countries that are chafing against this international rules-based order that the United States and many of our allies and partners have built up since the end of World War II. They don't like that. They'd like to rewrite the rules of the game globally, and they've been increasing their cooperation in their relationship, certainly of late. Well, duh. The United States, I mean, obviously China and Russia are forming a strong bond. And this, this idea that, and, and, and that we're going to continue to be dependent upon Chinese products, folks, we, we've, got to, we've got to cut the cord. We've got to find ways to supply the things that the United States needs. I mean, do you realize we're dependent upon China for some things that power the United States military? How crazy is that? I mean, they're clearly our enemies in the world. They work around the world, around the clock, to undermine American influence everywhere in the world. And yet, we're still dependent on the Chinese for so many things. We're dependent on uh, Taiwan for about 90% of the computer chips that we have. The stuff that goes into the computer chips that makes them possible so what if China invades Taiwan? Are, are we going to defend them? I think we would have to. But what does that mean for where the U.S. is able to keep the military one step ahead of our enemies if we can't get the materials that we need because we can't find a supplier other than Taiwan or China? Gordon Chang, who's a senior fellow for the uh, Gatestone Institute, told Fox News Digital that she seeks to gain more traction and leverage from his diplomatic success with the Islamic Republic of Iran and Saudi Arabia this month. Beijing and Moscow have intensified ties in steps to that began, began shortly before Russia's invasion of Ukraine with a meeting between the two leaders in Beijing during last year's Winter Olympics, where they declared a no-limits partnership. China has sought to protect itself as neutral in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, even while it has refused to condemn Moscow's aggression. 
Beijing has denounced Western sanctions against Moscow and accused NATO and the United States of provoking Putin's military action. So, I mean, th- this is the world that we've been given by Joe Biden, a world that w- that we were given by President Trump, where the Middle East was beginning to coalesce around the West because of their concern about Iran. Now we have Iran cutting deals with Saudi Arabia. We have China brokering that deal. We have China stepping to the forefront of diplomacy, and they're about to get involved wholeheartedly in supporting Russia against Ukraine, where the United States is spending billions of dollars along with its allies to try to defend Ukraine against Russian aggression. So what, I mean, we we have got to have a change in leadership. We have got to have adults back in charge of the White House and in charge of Congress. I mean, we've got an administration that's more concerned about woke policies, about diversity, about promoting the LGBTQ agenda than they are about defending the United States from aggressive enemies like China and Russia. And, of course, like Iran. And as long as we're doing that, I mean, that was part of the issue with the banking industry. The the people that were supposed to be the watchdogs within the bank to make sure that they didn't get into the trouble that the the banks have gotten into were spending all their time working on diversity, working on finding LGBTQ business efforts to invest in so they can look like that they're what is what they are. They're woke so that they can have some kind of kudos coming from the left. And instead of paying attention to the things that they should have been, that it could have kept the banks out of financial trouble. We have the same thing going on on the national level with the Biden administration allowing these things to take place geopolitically while focusing on a woke military and all these other ridiculous policies that are undermining the country. Okay, I've received a couple of emails from Diane Owen, who is, we've been having some discussion back and forth about the library, um, reviewing the materials in the library that should be an adult-only sections that are available to minors. And on March 13th, the library board uh, the a committee of the board met and made their recommendation to the full board. It was four votes affirmative with one abstaining that the materials be allowed only in the adult section. Well, the full library board is going to meet on March 27th, likely at 12 noon. Now, we, we, we don't have a confirmation of the time because the agenda hasn't been posted yet. But a decision will likely be made in regards to the LGBTQ books. It will be discussed and voted on. There will be an open-to-the-public speaking portion as well. So I'm encouraging everybody, we need to be present. I mean, this, is not, this, is, this kind of stuff is not fun. It's not, you know, something that everybody's crazy about getting involved in. But if we don't show up, if responsible adults who understand that no one's trying to ban books here. We're trying to place materials in the appropriate sections of the library so that children are protected from some of this material. 
Now, I'm going to read to you from some of the uh, I've got here some of this email from Diane. The Greenville County County Library System Board has been in the news. My simple response is, is, is that I always have and always will vote only to appoint library board members who assure me that he or she is firmly opposed to exposing children to adult materials. On November 1st, 2022, the Library Materials Committee met to review 23 books. These 23 books were compiled from a Facebook video posted by the Greenville GOP and a banned books list that was displayed and made available to the public at the Traverse Rest Branch. These books have received significant public attention, and Greenville County Council requested that the library board review the materials. The Materials Review Committee found that the three titles under review from the PEC sections did contain explicit material. There are currently six PEC collections. They're located at Five Forks, Greer, Maine, Malden, Simpsonville, and Traveler's Rest. Those are the libraries where these materials are in question. At the time of the meeting, the PEC sections were located in or near the juvenile sections of the library branches. The materials are available to be checked out on an adult or unrestricted juvenile card. They are not available to be checked out with a restricted juvenile card. However, they were easily accessible on the lower shelf of the main branch. So already the library says these are materials that cannot be checked out by juveniles. Okay? So why would you make them available to juveniles in that section of the library if they can't check them out unless they get an unrestricted card. The books contain graphic drawings of undressed adults and minors, drawings of minors engaging in both hetero and homosexual acts, along with information on how to engage in sexual activity and terminate unwanted pregnancies. The publishers recommend reading level for these books starts at 10 years old. Now think with me for a second, folks. We put child pornographers in jail. We lock them up because they're the scum of the earth. But we want to have books in the public library accessible by people that can't even check out the material, and the reason is because they depict sex acts between minors. Just, first of all, those materials don't need to be in existence. They need to be treated just like child pornography is treated as a crime. But if you're going to make some kind of case that these materials have to be available to adults from the library, then you've got to protect children. I don't care what the public... It is insane for children to be recommended to have materials that are sexually explicit at 10 years old. Everybody knows this. People, The people that are for this know that doesn't make any sense. They're for it anyway. I mean, I refuse to believe that there are sentient human beings walking around that actually think that 10-year-olds need to be exposed to explicit sexual material. I just don't believe that. It's turned into a political battle. If you're in favor of putting out this material in front of children, then that's that makes you woke. It makes you progressive. It makes you 
It's ridiculous. Because of the subject matter and explicit content of these three books, the Board of Trustees voted on December 5th to physically relocate the PEC collections and all six branches to the adult nonfiction areas of the respective branches. Due to the volume of materials up for review, the Library of Materials Committee was unable to review all the material in question. A review meeting will be scheduled after the first of the year to review and consider the remaining titles. On March 13th, 2023, the Materials Committee made its recommendation. It will go to the full board for a vote on March 27th. The recommendation revision of the policy will add language restricting certain topics from the library system's infancy to 12-year-old and 13 to 18-year-old sections. Topics that overlapped included explicit depictions or depictions of sexual acts and anything that affirms that a person's gender is other than the person's biological sex at birth. Books would not be removed from the libraries, only relocated to adult sections. To this point, I see all the review committee's recommendations as reasonable. <laughs> They're not just reasonable. They're the only thing that defends any kind of sanity. We, we cannot live in a culture, in a world, that refuses to protect our children from this kind of stuff. And we need people to stand up for this. That meeting's going to be on March the 27th. And we don't know how the full library board will vote. We know there's a lot, a lot of pressure against them. I mean, coming against them. To, to not put these and, – and what is the pressure? Is it, is it to prevent removal of the materials from the library? No, it's simply to get them out of the children's section. So children can't walk in there in a recommended section of the library and pick up a book that shows them pictures of minors having hetero and homosexual sex. I mean, I don't <laughs> – I hate to be that, that graphic, but that's what it is. That's what it's about. All right, I want to talk about the definition. We're going to wrap up today talking about the definition of woke. Um, you know, there's a big deal that happened over the weekend, people who are play, paying attention uh, to Brit, uh, Bethany Mandel. Bethany Mandel is a blogger. She's a writer. Um, she just had a rare bad, bad interview on The Rising uh, which is Brianna Joy Gray's program, apparently following some harsh off-camera comments about motherhood, Gray asked Mandel, a mother of six, to define the woke word. Mandel, after what were actually a few solid remarks about hierarchies of oppression, froze up for about 20 seconds, and that led to the usual Internet feeding frenzy. In other words, everybody's saying, see, see, even the right doesn't know what woke means, even though there's plenty of people that have put out a definition. I mean, that's just silly. Um, you know, a popular definition of woke, let, let me tell you what being woke means. It's a person or social justice warrior that's someone who believes that, number one, institutions of American society are currently and intentionally set up to oppress minorities, women, the poor, fat people, etc. I mean, you can just go through the list. Anybody that is 
that everybody is being oppressed by the system. Number two, virtually all gaps in performance between large groups prove that this oppression exists. And number three, the solution to this is equity, which means proportional representation regardless of performance or qualifications. It means the equality guaranteed of outcomes, not the equality. Equity and equality are two things that are, are, are two very different things. Equality means everybody has the same opportunity to succeed. Equity means everybody has to, when they step into the public arena, have the same guaranteed outcome. If it has to be guaranteed by the government, fine, but everybody gets the same outcome. That's ridiculous. That's not even possible unless it's forced. We all step into the culture, we step into society, we step into the workplace with our gifts and abilities, and they take us as far as we can go. But, I mean, it, it, this, this has been said probably too much as an example, but, I mean, I was never going to play in the NBA. I don't have the skill. I don't have the height. I don't have the, the quickness. I mean, I'm just not... I was not born with those gifts, but that doesn't mean that I'm oppressed because I want to play in the NBA and I can't. Now, I would never play in the NBA. I don't want to play in the NBA. But if I did and I'm, I'm not allowed to do that simply because I'm not physically gifted, that's oppression to the woke crowd. And it, 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 that can be applied to any area of life. So there's your definition of what it means to be woke. All right, that's all the time we've got for today. Tomorrow, once again, Corey Truax is going to be sitting in for me because I've got some meetings that I have to be at early in Columbia in the morning. I'm going down to Charleston tonight to help welcome the Southern Conservative Conference to Charleston. We are Palmetto Families, actually the welcoming uh, organization in South Carolina. So uh, Attorney General Alan Wilson is going to be helping us with that tonight. And then Wednesday morning is the governor's prayer breakfast, so we're going to have a best of on Wednesday of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam. And I will be back live with you on Thursday morning and then every day until we reach the end on March 31st. And, I'll, of course, you know what happens after that, and I'll be reminding you of that when I get back. Have a great day. God bless you.